Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, and I'm honored to be in dialogue today with my guest, Dr. Alexander Green. Dr. Green is a visiting associate professor and Buffalo community Jewish educator at SUNY University at Buffalo in the Department of Jewish Thoughts. We are here today to discuss his new book, Power and Progress, Joseph Ibn Kaspi and the Meaning of History, published in Albany by State University of New York Press, 2019. Alex, I'm absolutely grateful to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, Ari. It's my pleasure to be here. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up and were there any formative events in your early life that stimulated the scholar you would later become? Thank you. Well, I guess I'll, I mean, I grew up in Toronto, really Thornhill, not too far from you. Uh, we're almost neighbors. Yes, uh, we live around the corner from each other. Or at least, at least where I grew up was not too far from from you. And yeah. uh, went to Jewish day school, studied classical Jewish texts. And I would say when I got to university, I was uh, originally going to go into computer science. I was more practical, but. I was drawn in by the larger philosophical and ethical questions, both in Western philosophy and Jewish philosophy. And that drew, drew me to Israel, where I uh, did my MA in Jewish thought at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, which was really an incredible environment. And uh, I had some, I was able to study with some of the top scholars in the field uh, in medieval Jewish philosophy, in Kabbalah, in modern Jewish thought. Uh, and I was I was very lucky to that really stimulated my excitement to continue thinking about these big questions uh, of ethics and philosophy and, and Judaism, and uh, you know it really created the environment that uh, led me to where I am today. What inspired you to write this book? What do you hope your readers will gain from it? So let me let me perhaps talk a little bit about also if it's okay my first book as well because there's a link. Between Absolutely, the two. please. I'll just, yes, I'll just. Uh, mention uh, my first book as well. So I, my, you know, I really started, which was originally my dissertation, which became my first book, The Virtue Ethics of Levi Gersonides. Uh, I examined a Jewish philosopher and biblical commentator, Rabbi Levi ben Gershom, the Ralbag, or Gersonides, who lived at, in Provence uh, at the same time as Ibn Kaspi. And I was really interested at the time of, of like, how, how did Jewish philosophers after Maimonides think about ethics in the Middle Ages? How did they think about questions of happiness, of the active versus contemplative life, of the meaning of friendship, or what are the right virtues, moral virtues, intellectual virtues? And not that Maimonides was the only voice, because he really made it perhaps most famous in his work, such as the eight chapters, the Shemona Prakim, and in uh, the Hilchot Deot, the Mishnah Torah, but how did ethics continue after him? What, what, how did he create a tradition of an, a Jewish Aristotelian tradition of ethical thinking that both continued and debated and disagreed with it? And this led me originally to Gersonides and then eventually to Ibn Kaspi. So I, I, my first book, I was thinking about uh, what is virtue in Gersonides. And Gersonides had put a lot of emphasis on, not only on the moral virtues of courage and moderation and temperance and that's right and uh, gentleness and all these important moderate virtues that should be at the mean but also the virtues of human survival both the virtues of human survival of the body and also the virtues of altruism and he dealt a lot with the issues of moral conflict about how do human beings reconcile competing moral demands that are sometimes hard to reconcile and i realized that that Grisanides was writing in the 14th century uh responding to two new works that were just translated to Hebrew, Averroes' commentary on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and Averroes' commentary on Plato's Republic, both translated to Hebrew in the 1320s by Samuel ben, ben Judah. Uh, and 
who is Drusanides was reading these works, but both both were both and sorry, also was even Caspi, uh, both living in Provence in the 14th century, and both reading these works but presenting their own interpretations. I would say one commonality between Grisanides and even Caspi uh, is that both took the reality of bodily survival, the physical survival of, of the body, seriously as a human concern. I think you would say medieval Jewish philosophers are often uh, attributed, or, or at least, I don't know, it's not false, but they're often mm -hmm. presented as focusing purely on the intellect, that the highest goal of human life is the intellect and the knowledge of God and the highest knowledge of nature, and that everything else, ethics, is merely a means towards that highest goal. And I think one thing that both Grisanides and even Caspi were doing is that both thinkers uh, and commentators were suggesting that the intellect is not enough. You have to also have ethics, and you have to take ethics seriously, and you, all, and you have to focus on the body first. You can't have the intellect if you don't first have the body and you don't first focus on the body so there's and it comes out differently in grisanides and even Cassidy, but there, that's one commonality between them i think and i and I'll, I can, I'll talk more about you know how that plays out in even Cassidy as we i think proceed but i would say generally one that sort of stimulated me to write this book is and really write both these books is, is that issue and that question i think one thing i hope that people readers of the book will think about is how medieval philosophers, medieval Jewish philosophers, were complex thinkers who took ethics seriously and reflected on the tough moral and political questions and conflicts that human beings face. Can you share with us an outline of Joseph Ibn Caspi's biography? Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about his biography, because he has a he has an interesting biography that it's worth uh, it's worth reflecting on for a second. So let me start with his uh Gifts, give me a second. I want to want to make sure I don't just make up my facts here. But so here's what here's what I, here's what I can say about his biography. Uh, he lived from 1280 to 1345. Uh, he was a philosopher. He was a biblical commentator. He was a grammarian. He wrote commentaries on Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. He wrote commentaries on almost the entire Hebrew Bible. Uh, he wrote a dictionary of Hebrew roots. He was wrote summaries of Aristotelian logic, even wrote some of his own theological works. And uh, he had a famous statement that I write reference in the book, that the guide is of the perplexed is the most per perfect work written after the Bible that revealed and hints all the secrets of the Bible. So he's interested really, he's a philosopher who's very interested both in Maimonides' guide of the perplexed, but also in the Hebrew Bible. And that you can see that in the works that he wrote. But what about his personal life? That's important for me to talk about in terms of his biography. Uh, we know he was married. He had two sons and a daughter. We know that his oldest grandson converted to Christianity. And uh, that may be a factor in his writings that we see is often very polemical with, Christi with Christianity and Christians. He was someone with very strong opinions. Uh, he often had, had, he had no hesitation in being very open and critical of others in his writings. He, he describes the masses as horses and mules. He's often very critical of the appearance of local rabbis. He's critical of women. He's not, uh, he's not often the most uh, gentle of personalities, put it that way. And you can see that in his writings. Uh, we also know that he was a frequent traveler. He was always seemingly never staying in a single place too long. He was traveling around the world in terms of where he wrote his different works. He was often in different locations. Uh, he, one of his most famous trips, and this is described in one of his writings and one of his biblical commentaries, is he went down to Egypt to meet the great grandson of Maimonides, and he wanted to, you know, he wanted to meet the descendants of the great Rambam. And he talks about how disappointed he was upon meeting the descendants of Maimonides. They weren't, they weren't at the level philosophically that he hoped they would be. I think he's unique, and I don't know if there's anyone else, medieval, medieval story of someone who sort of went down and said, like, I'm going on a, a fan trip to meet the Maimonides family, like going down, you know, to Cooperstown, like the Baseball Hall of Fame. And, you know, I want to meet the great descendants of Maimonides and then talking about how, you know, he was disillusioned. Not that he was disillusioned with Maimonides, but he was disillusioned with his descendants. And uh, but th th this trip down to Egypt was interesting. It's like we can talk about, which is that he felt that when he went to, to, to Egypt and he 
learned about Egypt because you know, he was in grew up in Provence, southern France. He learned certain facets he felt of Egyptian culture and society, and he usually used that some on, on occasion to interpret the Bible and felt that you could explain different elements of the Bible's story by saying, well, that's the way it's done in Egypt, because he said, I witnessed it myself. Now, there some, are some problems with this, which we could get into, but just, just telling you about this from his uh, the biographical side here. Uh, we don't really know why he moved around so much. I mean, there's different scholarly theses, hypotheses, what, what it might be. Uh, people think maybe he had marriage troubles, or he was escaping Christian persecution. Maybe he was just visiting his children, or maybe he was dispute. He had disputes with other Jewish scholars. Could be that he was meeting other philosophical colleagues. I mean, these are all possibilities that seem plausible based on uh, certain things we know about him. But we don't have absolute certainty from his writings what what his, what the, the reason for his travels are. So that's a that's a short biography. A uh, little, little, some information about his uh, bio, and he has a he has a bit of a colorful bio. I mean, I would say that not every character, medieval Jewish philosopher, we know about their biography. I would say, you know, Maimonides, we have a lot of information about his biography because we have the Cairo Gniza, and we can see all these letters that he wrote, and people maintained his writings, different letters he wrote, and we have the Cairo Gniza. We can find all kinds of things about about his life and letters he wrote. You know, someone like Gersonides, who I mentioned, who I wrote my first book on, we don't have a lot about his bio. I mean, some scholars went into the archives and found some small details here and there, but it's not, we don't really know. We know he, you know, someone like Gersonides, we know he did some work for the Pope on astronomical research, but it's not like we have a large bio. So it's in some, some medieval figures. We have, you know, a lot about them biographically and others we know very little. What are the most important moral teachings of Joseph Ibn Caspi? So I put it as such, I would say that for Ibn Kasbi, uh, history is contingent and open, uh, that there's no set goal to history, unlike perhaps modern philosophers like Hegel, who would say we're moving towards a certain goal in history. I would say for Ibn Kasbi, history is free, it's open, we're free to choose good or bad, the future is up to us. Uh, and that has its advantages and disadvantages because he would say the chaos of so many historical events that nations rise and fall is because people are free and they make good decisions and they make bad decisions. On the other hand, he also suggests that the Torah, there's a sort of intellectual progress in the Torah, that, that, the, that knowledge has accumulated over time, that people know more about nature. There's a certain greater progress of enlightenment. So he thinks that... There's both enlightenment and there's certain progress to enlightenment, but there's also a certain uncertainty and openness or contingency to history. And these both play out at the same time for him. What contribution might Ibn Kasbi make in regard to contemporary and current debates regarding Zionism and Israeli history? So that's an interesting question. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question because... I wouldn't be the first to answer that. Actually, there's a sort of a larger historical precedent here uh, because in the 19th century, there were a bunch of scholars who read Ibn Kasbi as a sort of proto-Zionist. Uh, that's probably too strong a term uh, because he's not necessarily suggesting anything like that, but he is arguing, for, and it's, it's in his work called Tam HaKesef, and it's in a, a famous chapter uh, where he argues, and this follows from what I, I think said previously, uh, there's a link here, that Jews have been exiled from their land, they've lost sovereignty, but history is contingent and history is open and anything is possible. And therefore he said, if you give it enough time, the chances are one day Jews are going to go back and they're going to sort of rebuild their ancient sovereign kingdom that they once had. So he was saying, any, if it, just how anything is possible, that's likely possible enough too. And if you wait long enough, you'll see that happen too. So he's not, he's not going and sort of predicting that in a certain era, there's going to be this sort of historical movement that's going to come around. Uh, but he's also like, I guess you could say someone like Max, someone like Max Nordo, he's saying Jews don't have to wait for the Messiah. They don't have to sit around patiently waiting on divine action. Uh, it's based on human action. History is open. History leaves open the possibility of human beings taking action in their own hands. So this is a debate about how, so in that sense, even Kaspi could see someone who 
saw human history as a more a secular process, as something that God's not sort of pulling the strings, God's not controlling everything. And there is a certain parallel between those and some of the arguments that later arose in modern Jewish history. And even Kaspi is often looked to as a precedent for that. There's a famous article that discusses that by uh, Shlomo Pines, the great uh, translator of Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed. He has an article where he connects uh, Ibn Kaspi and Spinoza and asks whether Ibn Kaspi is a precedent for uh, Spinoza on the question of, uh, you know, Jews going, Jewish, Jewish sovereignty in, in Israel. And this goes back to, when it comes to Spinoza, a famous line at the end of the third chapter of the theological political treatise. But that's a whole other conversation. I'll try to figure out what that line means in Spinoza. But I'll just make that reference for those who want to look, look further. What aspects of Joseph Ibn Caspi's theology and philosophy are unique vis-a-vis -vis other Jewish Aristotelians of his period? In what ways does Ibn Caspi differ from Ralbag Gersonides, Ibn Falakera, Al-Balag, Pulkar, and others in his period who also were influenced by Maimonides, also engaged very seriously with Aristotle's philosophy. In what ways is he similar to them? In what ways is he unique? Yeah, that's a great question. So thank you. Um, I, I would say that one facet that makes the Jewish Aristotelians similar is that they all hold contemplation as the ideal. They all hold that knowledge of God and knowledge of nature is sort of the highest human pursuit. In that sense, you could say they're Aristotelians because that you see that image at the end of book one, uh, sorry, book ten of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where he presents that image of the highest life is contemplation. And I would say that the Jewish uh, interpreters who wanted to reconcile Aristotle and the Torah had to read the Torah in such a way that, that the, well, the purpose of the Torah is to acquire that knowledge, is to have the knowledge of nature. That Actually, that's what the Torah is trying to do, is to teach you how to understand nature as a whole. And many said that really the Torah is the best vehicle for the understanding of nature. And sometimes in polemics with, with Christianity, they would say, well, the Torah is actually a better version of vehicle to understand nature than, uh, than other religions. And that was sort of a polemic that was going on. And we see that in Ibn Kaspi. Uh, so that's something that makes, I would say, a lot of this tradition unique, like that, that's a common thread. But there's also subtle differences. And I, I don't want to suggest that medieval Jewish Aristotelians are all the same. Uh, I think one of the aspects that makes Ibn Kaspi different, and maybe that makes both Grisonides and Ibn Kaspi different, and why I've written on both of them, at least at this point in my career, is that uh, and this is one thing, there's a famous article on Falakera that makes this point, that many of the post-Maimonidean Jewish philosophers felt that if the perfection of the intellect is really what life is all about, the Torah is all about, then ethics is just sort of, you know, something you need to do. It's just sort of like a bunch of rules to keep you focused in your life, but it's not really the most important thing. It's just a means towards intellectual perfection. And it's ethics... And some even go far as ritual law are, are not really the most important thing. If you want to come back to that and even Caspi, I'll, I'll I can raise that point later as well, because there's something to say there also. Uh, but I think what makes Grisonides and even Caspi different is that as much as they, they hold that intellectualist ideal, they also say that one has to take the needs uh, of the body seriously. One can't focus just on the intellect. One has to look at the realities of the world, ethical, historical, political, and, and take them seriously because the intellect can exist without the body. We are embodied creatures and we need to focus also on the way the world works in a physical sense. And I think that's one aspect that we see of these philosophers, the 14th century. They don't, they, you might say they're not ascetic or they don't think human beings can just be ascetic creatures focusing on the contemplation of the heavenly bodies alone. There has to be a, a, a component of either worldly awareness or worldly involvement in some sense. And that doesn't mean that he thinks that 
Jewish thinkers have to be philosopher kings and you know taking political power in that sense, but they have to be aware of the obligations of what it means to live in this life. For Christianities, that means you have to perfect certain physical virtues, which I have uh, I would organize as ones called hishtalut, endeavor, and charitzut, diligence, and hitrachmut as well. Uh, cunning strategies. And these are these are virtues that deal with how to just survive in the world. There's a whole set of character traits that deal with that. I think for even Kaspi, who's similar in some regards, but also a little bit different, he would say we have to be aware of the rise and fall of kingdoms. We have to be aware of the of the contingent elements of history. We can't ignore history. We can't ignore that 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 there's historical empires who are vying for power. And sometimes an empire is going to rise, sometimes it's going to fall. And that's an important part of the world that we have to be aware of and that we're living in societies that uh, are, that require sometimes our guidance, maybe not direct involvement, but we have to at least be aware of that power dynamics that's at play in the world around us. I think in earlier Maimonideans, I would say from the 13th century, they often just sort of, they often at least so that wasn't as an important role for, for a Jewish philosopher to think about. Jewish philosophers should focus on the contemplation of the cosmos. You know, you got to be a little bit ethical, but that's not really the, the focus of human life. What unique contribution does your book make to the study of Ibn Kasbi's thought and writing? How does your book advance contemporary scholarship on Ibn Kasbi? Where do you situate your book amid contemporary scholarship in the field of medieval Jewish philosophy? Good question. Something I have to, uh, I want to answer seriously because it's an important question. So I think I'm bringing out in my book the aspects of Ibn Kaspi that is aware of the historical, uh, that's aware of these historical trends and that history is, uh, can be looked at as some kind of pattern uh, and that there's certain rules that govern history. I don't want to say I'm completely innovative in this uh, in this field because I would say that that I, I will be thankful to two different articles I mentioned in the introduction that laid the groundwork for these. And these were an article by uh, Shlomo Pines and an article by Izzer Otwarski, both uh, notable scholars of medieval Jewish philosophy, one at uh, Hebrew University of Jerusalem and one at Harvard. And both wrote important articles where they brought out uh, the, that Ibn Kaspi's awareness of history as as uh, as some kind of pattern of events over time, and I tried to bring that out in uh, a more serious way in my book and try to look at all of Ibn Kaspi's writings and draw that out as to suggest that he has different models of history that are operating simultaneously. And that's really what comes down to the title of the book, what called Power and Progress. These are two different models for how history operates for Ibn Kaspi. One that is the contingent uh, history of kingdoms rising and falling that's often based on power. And one, the other is that history operates as a progressive uh, enlightenment over time. He felt that the knowledge of nature, which is exemplified in this image of the divine chariot in the Hebrew Bible, is, is uh, something which has actually been revealed more over time. He actually thinks the Bible is a tool to progressively reveal that element, that, that, that truth about nature. And it's not necessarily just a Jewish truth. It's, I mean, it's nature. Nature is, exists mm -hmm. as a whole. Uh, but, you know, he would, how he'd respond to Christians who would say is, is a, is also a related question we could talk about. Um, so I, I, my, my book is trying to bring out how that operates seriously for Ibn Kaspi. And uh, also there's an element of, you might say, historicism, uh, which is another way of looking, which is to say that to understand the Bible in its historical context. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Ibn Kaspi was a modern biblical critic in that regard, that he would reduce the Bible to history because he did see the Bible as philosophy, but he also suggested there were certain parts of the Bible that could be looked at historically. This return, this goes back to what I mentioned about his trip to Egypt, where he felt that uh, when he went to Egypt, he saw different facets of Egyptian culture, and that those facets could be used as a way of interpreting 
certain mysterious elements of the Bible that we weren't aware of. Now he's not, I don't, I don't want to suggest he's just historicizing the Bible, but there are certain times he does employ that as well. And that's one thing Israel Torsky brings out in his article on Ibn Kasti, which is a very interesting article for those, I definitely recommend it uh, for those who haven't read it, one of his classic articles. And uh, there he brings out the historicist, that Ibn Kasti, he brings out how much Ibn Kasti is a historicist, how much he relies on societal and cultural factors in trying to understand certain certain parts of the Bible. Speaking of the divine chariots, can you elaborate on his interpretation of the meaning of the divine chariots? How does his interpretation of the divine chariot underpin the ideas that are central to his worldview? Yeah, that's a it's important to understand that. And uh I mean Ibn Kasbi is not unique here. I think I want to bring that out. I'm not suggesting he is the first in any way to do this. This is a there's a long tradition going back to the rabbis about this image of God or this, let's say just an image of someone riding on a chariot in the Bible, and this being considered by the rabbis one of the great secrets of the Torah described in the Mishnah Chagiga, the Masemer Kava. And this was Maimonides, who even Kaspi looks to as an, who is sort of his guide, brings this out and suggests that part of what he's doing and Maimonides is doing in the Guide of the Perplexed is to revealing certain, the tradition of the divine chariot, or I guess revealing and concealing elements of the divine chariot that were lost. He is sort of that the secrets of a divine chariot were uh, lost over time and that Maimonides, in writing his work, is trying to introduce people to it, but not introduce them too much. And uh, what the, what is this image? I should say. I don't want to assume that the, read, the listeners know. Uh, if you look at Isaac, sixth chapter of Isaiah, first chapter of Ezekiel, tenth chapter of Ezekiel, especially, these are chapters in the Bible where you have this image of someone writing. Well, the images are different. You have a very terse description. I'm just saying, chapter six of Isaiah, and a very detailed description in especially in the first chapter of Ezekiel, where you have this image of someone riding on a chariot, and it's a chariot in the heavens, and that chariot has pulled by different creatures, and part of, at least in Ezekiel version, that those creatures have different faces of different animals, and there's wheels, and the wheels are turning, and the wheels have eyes in them. Now this, to understand what this means, it sounds very it's at least interpreted to be very allegorical by by uh, later interpreters. And I think the way, the way even Caspi reads this, it's important to know, is this, this image is an allegory for nature. It's an allegory for the natural world, where, where God, uh, where, where, the, where the rider, the horses, and the wheels each represent different parts of the tripartite level of hierarchy of nature according to the Aristotelian sciences where the rider the riders of the chariot represent the separate intellects the spheres represent sorry the horses represent the celestial spheres which the planets are on and the wheels represent the world of matter the world of the four elements so he felt that by understanding the chariot this image it's really it's all about nature now that's really what's underneath the Torah as a whole, and even Kaspi's version. Now he makes a point. I don't know if that that, that when the temple was destroyed, uh, the by was it, the these other nations took the secrets of divine chariot from the Jews, and they and they took them and they brought them into their own traditions. So he argues that, and this, he's not the only one who makes this. It's an argument that's prevalent throughout medieval Jewish thought that actually the secrets of nature and philosophy are really Jewish ideas that were taken by the Greeks and the Romans and appropriated as their own and made, uh, but really it's the job of the of us writing to his Jewish compatriots to reclaim our lost tradition. And that when they when they conquered us, they took our they took our, our philosophical secrets and ran, ran away with it and made it their own. So really Aristotle is really articulating the truths of the Bible. He's articulating these secret truths that are embedded in the Bible, but making them public uh, and developing them. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should necessarily see this as historical truth, but it is part of the narrative that even Caspi and, and other, other medieval thinkers have uh, have written about. There's a book actually that, that's written on this theme, not written by me, by someone else, that actually articulates that, that goes through the entire history of, uh, of this this image or myth of the secrets of philosophy really being Jewish. 
you, you alluded to this briefly earlier, but I'd be curious to ask you, um, what were Ibn Kasbi's views on Christianity? Can you comment in more detail about what his perspective was on the Christian religion in relation to the Jewish religion? Yeah, this is an important uh, an important point that it's uh, important to discuss when looking at Ibn Kasbi. And one should note that uh, medieval Jewish philosophers, especially living in Christian, the Christian world, were were in polemical dialogue or polemics with Christianity, and they and even Kaspi is not unique here. Many medieval Jewish philosophers living in the Christian world uh, were arguing over whether philosophy is closer to Judaism or Christianity, and trying to use the tools of philosophy to defend their own religion. And even Kaspi does so here. Uh, whether it's for personal reasons or because of he's having debates for communal reasons. Uh, here's what he says about how Judaism and Christianity relate. I'll try to articulate, I think, in about three points that are that, are, that we should uh, lay out. So he, he thinks that both Judaism and Christianity are religions founded by philosophers. He thinks that both religions, to a certain extent, have the same philosophic truth contained within it. So he's not bothered by seeing the Trinity by saying, well, Judaism has an idea of Trinity too. Uh, but what he thinks differentiates Judaism and Christianity is to say that Chris, he, in, his, in his polemical argument, Christianity reserves the truth for an elite. So it keeps the truth as sort of hidden within the text as opposed to within the holy text. So Christianity doesn't try to bring its adherence, he argues, into philosophical truth, while Judaism, he thinks its holy texts, tries to use the tools of the holy text to bring people towards greater enlightenment. So it's constructed pedagogically to try to enlighten its adherents. And he thinks that's the difference between Judaism and Christianity on a, on a, a sort of textual level. It's not that one is philosophical, one's not into philosophy. He thinks both are philosophical, but Christianity doesn't give it, the philosophy's hidden. You don't know how to get to it. Judaism, the whole structure of the Hebrew, of the text in Hebrew, are there to get you to be a more educated, enlightened person, to understand the secrets and truths of, of philosophy that are, of the, what he would say in him, is the image of the divine chariot that are embedded within the text. So it plays out in three ways. So I'm going to, I said three. I'm not, nothing to do with the Trinity here, but three just because that's the way it plays out, which is number one, the Hebrew language. Uh, he has a very interesting philosophy of the Hebrew language, uh, which is that the Hebrew language, the way it's structured, is actually a mirror of the natural world. That Hebrew language has nature and the structure, the, the 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 meaning of the principles of nature built into the structure of the roots of the Hebrew language, and that to understand uh, the Torah as a vehicle to understand nature, then you have to look at it in its origin, because he thinks and this this means that every Hebrew root, uh, every shoresh, has a certain principle, an idea embedded within that shoresh. And this is why he actually wrote a, a Hebrew dictionary called Sharshot Keset, where he, in that dictionary, he tries to say, well, every usage of the same three-letter root throughout the Bible actually is connected in some kind of, uh, some kind of common theme. And he tries to prove that. So he argues that when Christians read the Bible in translation, and here he, he often polemicizes against the translation of the Bible into Latin, he does this often in his work called Shulchan Kesef, but it's, I think it's in, other, it's in other places too, where he argues that the translation of the Bible into Latin misses its original meaning because it, it doesn't reveal the depths of the Hebrew, which is built, built into the roots of the Hebrew letters of the Shoresh itself. So that's one critique of Christianity uh, that he makes, and he starts different. Uh, another thing he argues is that the Bible... Uh, the Hebrew Bible hermeneutically is constructed to guide people towards truth. So he has all these hermeneutical tools that he argues are in the Bible, like things like the Bible repeats words and it uh, has empty spaces and it has all these different tools. It often contradicts itself. He says that's one thing about the Jewish Bible, the Torah, that is there to guide its readers towards this truth in a way that he thinks that other holy scriptures don't do. 
And the third point, which is something that came out of our discussions, but I, wouldn't, I didn't draw out the implications for, for his polemic with Christianity, is that he thinks that, that Christians, interpreters of the Hebrew Bible, misunderstand their, its prophetic teachings. He says they read an eschatological reading into many of the prophetic books. Uh, they read a teaching that, that talks about the end of history or a, of some kind of transcendent history. And he argues that the biblical prophets were, were talking about prophetic, were, were prophesizing things that are going to happen in the immediate future, not in a distant future. The Bible, he says, the biblical prophets can't predict what's going to happen at the end of days. They don't know what's going to happen 500 years down the road. He thinks he actually says it's bad when Jewish readers do that. Jewish interpreters shouldn't do that either. He says if you do that, Jewish interpreters who do that, they're actually supporting the Christian argument. He says all that the biblical prophets are doing is predicting an immediate political future for the Israelite or Judean kingdoms in relation to their neighbors. They're not talking about a history that's going to happen in some kind of distant future. And therefore, he thinks that when Christian interpreters or even Jewish interpreters, we criticize this too, try to read in some kind of eschatological or, or long apocalyptic future in some kind of distant end of time or even just a distant far off time period, that's not the way prophecy works. And that connects to his idea that, that history is open and contingent, that there's no necessary direction to where history is going to go. It can go in multiple directions. And uh, often the biblical prophets were saying, well, this is what's likely going to happen in the future. But even there, there's 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 some openness. They, they thought that's what's going to happen, but they don't know for sure. And that if they can't know for sure what's going to happen in the immediate future, they're definitely not going to say what's They definitely don't know for sure what's going to happen 200, 500 years or whatever, like a long time away down the road. So I would say these are the three points that I would say even Cosby makes in his polemic with Christianity. Number one, language, Hebrew over Latin. Number two, hermeneutics, so how the text is, is structured as a holy text to guide its reader towards this philosophic truth. And number three, history being contingent and not eschatological. It's being open, or say, it, it, contingent and immediate and not eschatological and long-term. You would, now, there's no, he didn't write one work talking about this. These I've, I've pieced this together throughout studying all of his writings. So you're not going to open Ibn Kaspi and find a work where he says, this is my polemical argument against Christianity. These are just pieces that he gives you throughout all of his writings. And you have to, uh, you have to go through them as a whole and try to put them together. But I, I do talk about them in my book. In your perspective, what, if anything, can be done to make Ibn Kasbi's ideas more accessible to ordinary Jewish religious readers outside of academic Jewish studies? So that's a challenge. I, I admit that's a challenge. Uh, I'll tell you why, why it's a challenge, but I, I don't think it's a challenge that should be given up. And it's a good one to try to accomplish, but it's not an easy one. And here's, here, are the, here are the obstacles I, I would lay out. Um, first, I would say that few of his writings are in English. Fewer in critical editions, that's one thing. But even mm -hmm. the ones that are that there are critical editions, very few are in English. So we don't, you know, for the reader who doesn't know Hebrew, you're not going to find a lot of writing. What we do have in English is uh, we have the ethical will that he wrote. That's It's in a volume on Jewish ethical wills. Uh, there's Barry Mensch translated a work called Kfusat Kesef, and uh, Basil Herring translated the one of his works called Kviat Kesef, Goblet of Silver. Uh, so there's a couple of his works, but he, he wrote about, I, I don't have the full number in front of me, but he wrote a lot more than this. And those are not his, uh, those are not his like main biblical commentary. So, we, so for the Hebrew reader can access that, but for the English speaking reader is, uh, will have trouble finding most of his writings. I would say a second point is that he didn't make it into the Mikroktobot. Uh, he never had a, uh, he, you know, Gersonides, who not all of his works are in the Mikroktolot, let me just say Mikroktolot is the rabbinic Bible compilation, the compilation of commentaries that was put together, you know, in the early modern period to try to assemble different commentaries and put them on the side of the text beside the Hebrew biblical text. Now, there's not one version of the Mikroktolot. There's a lot of different versions. Uh, you can look at the scholarship Barry Levy, who talks about this, uh, about the different evolving Mikroktolots throughout time. But he, I don't, even Caspi never wasn't someone who made it even to any of the micro uh, And he never really had a, a constant following, a, I would say, sorry, consistent following historically. You see him critiqued in later sort of medieval commentary, like a Barbanel will critique him. Uh, I think maybe a Rama too. But 
it wasn't like he had a consistent following. And that's one thing that makes his works different than Grisanides. Grisanides always had a, a, a following uh, of, of readers. People republished his toilet. Some of his biblical commentaries were some of the first printed Hebrew books. Ibn Kasbi never really had that. And I think only in the 19th century, his uh, writings were recovered and reprinted by, by scholars. Uh, another ch a third challenge you might say is that he's very philosophical and his writings are embedded in philosophical language and they're elusive and he doesn't always say what he's thinking. And it's often, if you're not uh, an expert in Aristotelian philosophy, you might find some of the language off-putting. Uh, and one reason that you might say that another sorry, another reason you might say that Grisanides and even that was more had more of a following is he wrote an independent work, an independent theological work called Wars of the Lord. And he also wrote biblical commentaries. Well, Grisanides never, I'm sorry, even Cuspi didn't write like a best a book that made it as sort of like its own independent treatise. He was often known as a he wrote most of his work worked philosophy into his biblical interpretation. And I should say he also wasn't someone who wrote on Jewish law. He didn't deal with the commandments. There's an idea that often Maimonides was preserved. Maimonides was famous because, the Gaurus put it this way, the guide of the perplexed was preserved because he was also the author of the Mishnah Torah. That people preserved Maimonides' more radical philosophic views because he also was the more conservative halachist at the same time. And even Katsby wasn't as interested in Jewish law. In fact, you find places where he's very critical of himself and saying, yeah, I don't know much Jewish law. I mean, there's a whole famous story about that, which I could we can go into as well, uh, about his admitting his lack of knowledge of, of uh, Jewish law. So there's, there are certain obstacles one has to, towards uh, reading Ibn Kasvi. But I do think his work is very interesting. And I, and I do hope that perhaps when more is translated to English, and uh, today it's been republished, new critical editions. I would say more people are interested in Ibn Kasbi today. And I would say people are interested in, you know, in a wide variety of biblical commentaries today. There's an interest in not just following the more traditional biblical commentaries, the Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Nachmanides, but also, <coughs> also looking at the variety of commentaries that didn't make it, that are not sort of the traditional canon. You might say also for those who are interested in science and religion and the question of if, if you think of medieval Jewish philosophy as in some ways all about the question of science and religion, even though their idea of science is different than ours, uh, these commentaries like Ibn Kasfi are, are engaged with that. And I don't mean just Ibn Kasfi, but he's one of those post-Maimonidean Jewish biblical commentaries that commentators and within his commentaries that are thinking about how the world of science and the world of religion could come together and that's that's not unique to him but he, but he's definitely fits within that that trend of what medieval jewish philosophers were thinking about and debating how did ibn Kasbi understand the four beasts as depicted in the book of daniel how does this interpretation underpin his understanding of politics so yeah that's a great image that he has in uh that that book that Daniel has in the biblical book of Daniel. And uh, it's in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And for Ibn Kasbi, that's, uh, he places important on how to read that seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. Um, you might say that uh, the, that seventh chapter of the book of Daniel becomes a paradigm for how to look at Jewish history according to many medieval Jewish commentaries. Uh, because it presents this image of four animals that at least is interpreted by Jewish tradition in the Midrash as four kingdoms that oppress the Jews. So there's one animal. The first animal is an animal like a lion with eagle's wings. A second is an animal like a bear with three ribs between its teeth. The third is an animal like a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the fourth is an animal with large iron teeth and ten horns. Now, if you interpret these allegorically, as Jewish interpreters have done, they're saying that these aren't just four animals, they're actually representative four kingdoms that are going to oppress the Jews throughout history. And the question is, how, who do you identify these four with? So I think traditionally, the first three are identified, at least in some form, with Babylonia, with Persia, and with Greece. But the question is, who, who is the fourth kingdom? And where do you fit Christianity and Islam into this uh, portrait, or is, is is the fourth kingdom Christianity, 
and Islam is the fourth animal, or is the Christianity the third, and the fourth is Islam. And so what even in there's a lot of different interpretations of this, but I'll just focus on even Kaspi's, which is that he uh, he interprets he doesn't see these as sort of like a linear process where once the third is done, then the fourth begins. He sees the third and fourth as actually both active at the same time. He says the third is Christianity, even though it's he sort of connects Greece, Rome, Christianity together, and he sort of he would group those together as the third animal and the fourth animal he he links, he would say, as Islam. And he would say that Jews living in his own time period are living between the third and the fourth animal. And we don't know which one is going to win, which one's going to be victorious. Uh, and he thinks that these are not the only ones. So he doesn't see this as sort of like a, a set group, like once these are all done, then Jews are free, and there won't be many more oppressors in history. He argues that these are four examples of, of oppressors that Jews have had, will have, uh, throughout history, but it's not restricted to these four. And uh, he thinks that, that, as I said, three is Christianity, four is Islam, and we're living between three and four, and we don't know which is going to win, because ever, as I suggested earlier, history is contingent. History is open. There's no set goal for which it's moving towards. So who knows what's going to happen? Maybe maybe you'll have a big Christian empire, maybe you'll have a Muslim empire, maybe you'll go, go back and forth. Uh in his mind, he's open to whatever the future may hold. And he thinks that's really what's underlying this. And he actually describes this as uh, a great, uh, if I'm correct, I don't want to misquote this here, but I think he says the great secret of the Torah. Make sure I didn't lose you there for a second. Mm -hmm. You're here? Okay, good. Um, and he says, in quote, it's in uh, Tama Kesef, where he says, who does not, not know, who does not see constantly the revivals and collapses of constantly alternating nations? Uh, things go up and down, and uh, this is one of the secrets of the Torah, that we don't know what direction history is going to be. We don't know what who's going to be victorious uh, down the road. And uh, we he thinks this is actually one of the ways of interpreting the Torah is to understand this chapter of Daniel chapter 7, at least understand the way history operates or may operate in the future, according to the Torah. So it's an important allegory that plays a central role in the way he understands Jewish history, but really history in general. In what ways did Ibn Kasbi critique Maimonides' philosophical worldview, and on what grounds? Where did Ibn Kasbi agree with Maimonides, and where did he disagree? So this is a tough one in some ways. Uh, I'll say why it's a tough one, because he considered himself a follower of Maimonides. Uh, he wrote two commentaries on Maimonides' Guide of the Perplex. He wrote a work called Amudei Kesef, Masks of Silver, and Maskiot Kesef, set, Settings of Silver. And these are, um, one is exoteric, another is an esoteric commentary on the guide. So not only did he write one commentary, he wrote two different commentaries on the guide. Uh, and he wrote very clearly in one of his writings, the guide is the most perfect work written after the Bible. So he was, he's happy to jump right from the Bible to Maimonides in his, uh, in his uh, framework. So he was in many ways a follower of Maimonides, but he would also, I think, say that he felt he was extolling Maimonides' true beliefs. So there's a lot of debates over what the Rambam taught, what Maimonides was teaching. It's not a easy one to figure out today. Uh, scholars are still debating this question. And uh, we're not still not clear what the answer is. That's perhaps why it's interesting. But Ibn Kasbi felt that he was extolling, he was proposing, you know, he was making known Maimonides' true beliefs. So, for example, he, he was pretty clear. He felt Maimonides' true belief was that the world is eternal and that in the big question of the origin, the origin of the world, uh, it wasn't the view of creation from nothing or the view of the Platonic view of creation from pre-existent matter, but it was Aristotle's view of the eternity of the world. He felt that was Maimonides' true view, and if you read it carefully, you'd, you'd come to that conclusion. So he felt he was, he was making that case. I would say in other areas, he was drawing out Maimonides' teaching, maybe bringing, he felt he was bringing it out to the open, what Maimonides may have hinted to or implied. I mean, you could see certain areas where there seems to be some, some significant uh, difference. And I bring this out <coughs> in the book. Uh, you know, Maimonides quotes Aristotle uh, that human beings are political by nature. Famously discusses that in Guide 
240 of the guys perplexed. And uh, we're, we're naturally organized to want to live in communities and 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 be and need to we can't live ice as isolated individuals uh this this is indirectly a reference to aristotle's politics at the beginning not that maimonides had it to to read it directly from that source uh but read it through alpha rabbi and uh even Kaspi, in some ways doesn't take exactly that view in fact he says and this is, I think it's in his commentary on Proverbs, where I'm citing this here, where he says, man is political by necessity. And he emphasizes that human beings uh, don't really, it's, it's better not to be, and it's better to, you know, not get too involved in the, in, in the, in your community. Maimonides might say, well, no, the greatest prophet was a lawgiver, was people who tried to perfect their society, make it better, make it more just. Well, even Kasti saying, stay away from stay away from being involved too much uh it's very hard to perfect your society society is much corruption it's often unjust the rulers are often making decisions based on their whims and history isn't really about justice it's often driven by accident by rhyme reason so as opposed to saying man is political by nature he emphasized political by necessity and I think that slight change is more than just uh, an element of wording. It, it represents uh, a big difference. Now, even though even Cosby says he's a follower of Maimonides, I think in certain areas, he takes him in a slightly different direction. And here you might say he's a little bit closer, at least even Cosby, to the Islamic philosopher, Ibn Baja, who we were talking about, who, who emphasizes not wanting better to be in solitude, not wanting to get too involved in your surrounding community. Uh, and uh, the danger of getting too involved. And even Basha famously has a whole work where he, he discusses this explicitly. And I'm not, even Kasky doesn't cite even Basha directly here, but I think his, his perspective seems to be closer to that when it comes to how involved you should be in the surrounding society. How might Ibn Kaspi, as a Jewish Aristotelian, respond to the contemporary claims of biblical criticism? So how, yeah, how would Ibn Kaspi respond to biblical criticism? Now, of course, it's important to note that Ibn Kaspi never heard of biblical criticism because it's a movement that, uh, a way of interpreting biblical texts that takes place after he lived in the modern era and even Kaspi's writing in the medieval era. So of course he would not know of biblical criticism, but it is interesting to think about, uh, are there certain parallels and where if, if you had to compare an even Caspian approach to the Bible to modern biblical critical approach to the Bible, how would he differ? Where would he be similar? So I would say one area where there's a similarity is that he is open and, uh, at times to the possibility of multiple authorship. And he notes that in, uh, you know, he has an area he has in his commentaries, he, he follows Maimonides' different lists of contradictions, that there's different contradictions in the texts. And he he, when he's talking about the first model of contradiction, this is a list that takes place in the beginning of the Guide of the Perplexed for those who, you know, those readers, listeners who are not aware of what I'm referring to. And the first in that list of seven contradictions is a contradiction because it is a compilation of different authors and perspectives that were edited and placed beside each other in the same book. So he's not, he, he believes you can extend that to the Bible. You, you're open, he's open to saying the Bible has different authors and it was not all written by uh, by the same authorship, and you can, you can find different authors within it. Uh, but he wouldn't go all the way to reducing the Bible to the purely the imaginative constructions of its authors. And here's where Ibn Kasbi differs. Uh, here's you know you might say Spinoza, who was one of the founders of that of, of the modern biblical critical approach, uh, famously said that the biblical authors have vivid imaginations. In other words, they're 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 writing the text was based on their imagination. They were not scientifically educated. You don't go to the Bible for Spinoza for scientific truth. Go to your local scientist. Go to your local philosopher. Don't go to the Bible. Spinoza was trying to win people, wean people off trying to read the Bible scientifically or philosophically. Uh, so I think even Caspi would not go that far because even Caspi still held that the Bible was a work at the level of philosophy. It was a work that he felt contained deep truths within the text. And uh, 
who was guy was there to guide people to these truths. So in some ways, you see a little bit of both, perhaps. Even Caspi is someone who, like the modern biblical approach, would say there is sometimes written by multiple authors, and there's an element of historicism. Sometimes you can understand the Bible in light of its historical approach, in light of its historical society. But he was also someone who said, like the more medieval approach, that the Bible is a work of truth. It's a work that's guiding you to these highest truths. It's not there just as a historical document that can be read in light of its surrounding culture and times. And how he would, you know, how he would get in a debate with it would be interesting to see the debate if you could bring even Caspi back to life and bring a modern biblical critic beside him and then have that debate. It'll be interesting to see how they would how they would hash it out. I'd be curious to ask you about a certain quote in your book on page 87, where you write the following. Ibn Caspi defends the philosophers against the accusation that they do not pray to God, by arguing that even for philosophers, the order of prayer has a purpose. It teaches that God is the first cause and that God is one. Can you elaborate on that idea? Let me look at it within a sort of larger trope of medieval Jewish thought, which is there was an accusations, an accusation that philosophers did not take Jewish ritual seriously. I think that comes out of prayer, but it's in general an accusation that philosophers didn't pray, they didn't take Jewish ritual seriously because uh, they were concerned with knowledge of God. They weren't concerned with all the rules. They were concerned with the highest goal, which is the highest knowledge of God. And they might say, well, if my focus is on the highest knowledge of God, why do I need uh, prayer? Why do I need to focus on on these rituals like prayer? Uh, so here he, might, he seems to be, in some ways, giving a justification for certain rituals, saying that even the philosophers who maybe focused on knowledge can find value in in ritual activities like prayer. It's not it's not just for for the rest of society. Even the elite can find it. And, but but it is I think this is a good place to insert. And mention one of the famous stories about Ibn Kasti that he's well known for. And this is mentioned in his ethical will, which is he quotes in his ethical will, or he references a story told about himself for a time when he was having a, a dinner party and he was getting people were there and he was getting all the food ready. And he says, uh, I can quote here, I invited my friends to eat and drink with me. Uh, for it was a family party, and the luckless handmaid put a milk spoon into the meat pot. I did not know the ritual law, how one ought to estimate the lawfully permittable portion of intermixture. In other words, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm interested in these, you know, knowledge of God. I don't know about, you know, the laws of kosher. You know, maybe I studied it when I was a kid. So I'll quote again. He says, perturbed in mind, as well as far damaged in body, I went to one of the rabbis, held high in popular repute. He was, for my sins, at table with his wife and family, eating drink and drinking wine. I waited at his door until the shades of evening fell, and my soul was near to leave me. He was then told me the law, and I returned home when my guests and poor were awaiting me. I related all that had happened, for I, wished, for I was not ashamed to admit myself unskilled in the particular craft. In this lack, uh, this I lack skill but I have skill in another craft. Is not the faculty of expounding the existence and unity of God as important as familiarity with the rule concerning a small milk spoon? So to summarize, he had a party. He had some people over. Someone mixed milk and meat when he was cooking. He went to the local rabbi. The local rabbi was at his own, was having his own get-together, too busy to talk to him to answer his halachic shayla about what to do with the spoon. So he ended up sitting outside. Uh, I guess he missed his party. I don't know. The guests were waiting there for hours, singing, where, where did my host go for all this time? Uh, but they were just good hosts. They waited for him, which is nice. I, maybe I would have left if I was if my host just disappeared on me for a number of hours uh, in the middle of the party. Uh, but he, he self-deprecatingly, and not only, I mean, in a positive way about himself, he says, I'm not ashamed. You know, okay, I don't, I'm not an expert in Kashrut. I didn't, uh, I didn't, go and study that in yeshiva for so long but but i know something even greater he says i know the the existence of i can prove the existence of unity of god why do i care about the small milk spoon why is that as important to me and this is he's often and this is a point this story was often used to disparage uh the jewish philosophers like even kaspi who are saying look at it look at these look at these they don't know any halacha you know they're halachically ignorant they don't know jewish law they're they're so concerned with these great truths, but they don't even know the basic rules of of kosher. 
So part of what Ibn Kaspi might be doing here is to say, at times, you know, even philosophers, you should take some Jewish law seriously. He's not saying you have to take all of Jewish law seriously because, you know, he's very critical of things like the sacrificial order following Maimonides, which he just, in his, in Ibn Kaspi's commentary, he just basically says, yeah, I don't need to talk about all the sacrifices. We'll, we'll skip that part when we get to Vayikra. But certain rituals, he says, are important, and even the philosophers should take seriously. And this might be one of them, like prayer. Um, as a final question, as we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you kindly share with us what you are working on next as your current project? I'm happy to share a few uh, exciting things that I'm working on. Uh, one, and I'm happy to put a plug in because it's coming out hopefully in 2023. I'm co-editing with uh, Alan, Jeffrey Clausen and Alan Middleman, a book called Jewish Virtue Ethics. Uh, well, it's with SUNY Press. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a book uh, with 35 chapters, uh, each chapter dealing with a different thinker or approach or movement uh, or work, I should say, dealing with character and virtue in the Jewish tradition. So we're going to have chapters, we have chapters on thinkers as wide ranging as Philo, Josephus, Talmud, Maimonides, Nachmanides, the Zohar, Chrysanides, Crescas, Albo, Cordovero, Mendelssohn, I'm just, not, I'm just naming some, Rav Salanter, Abraham uh, Isaac Cook, Martin Buber, Mordechai Kaplan, Soloveitchik, Rent, Levinas, and others as well. Uh, a chapter on Jewish environmentalism, a chapter on Jewish feminism, and looking at how the idea of virtue and what each how each one has an idea of virtue and character development. And our, and our intention is to show that character development of virtue is a central part of the Jewish tradition going all the way back to the Bible until today. And there's a real diversity of different approaches to how one thinks about the nature of virtue in the Jewish tradition. And that there's no one agreed upon model. There's a lot of, and there's a debate and dialogue between different thinkers going back to antiquity until today. So we're hoping this is gonna be a work that's gonna create a lot of excitement and readers and uh, influence the field of Jewish ethics uh, to take people take virtue and Judaism more seriously. Hmm. And uh, I mean, I can say a few other things I'm, I'm working on briefly. Uh, I'm, I'm doing some work on Maimonides, on the environments, on how Maimonides dealt with the natural environment uh, in dialogue with contemporary environmentalism. Uh, I'm working a little bit on Maimonides on moral psychology how we understood the role of the human psyche, the emotions, and the role of the emotions in a flourishing Jewish life. And I'm also going to be presenting a paper at the Association for Jewish Studies coming up in December on, uh, on a thinker of the 15th century, Joseph Albo, in his polemical work, Sefer Ha'ikarim. And uh, I'm going to, also related to virtue, I'm going to be talking about uh, the virtues of trust and hope and why he emphasized in his book, Sefer Ikarim, Ha'ikarim, uh, these theological virtues, why he thought that Jews, especially under persecution uh, at the time and under, in Spain, running before, you know, before the Inquisition, uh, have to trust, believe, have trust, and they also have to believe in hope, why these are important Jewish virtues, different than the ones I emphasized in Grisanides, <coughs> such as endeavor and diligence less on the individual, but more on why the collective and where where he what, where these virtues come from and why he's emphasizing them in his work. Thank you. I wish you only the best of luck. These sound like outstanding initiatives and tremendous projects that will make significant contributions to Jewish readers and to anyone who's interested in ethics and morality from both an, an academic perspective and an everyday perspective. Ari, it's been wonderful to speak. I appreciate your very generous questions. And uh, you really got the heart. You asked me great questions. I really got to the heart of what I was working on. So I, I hope all my readers are as, uh, read the book as seriously as you and uh, ask such great questions. But thank you. Thank you for the interview. Thank you. I, I could not have been more appreciative to read this amazing book and to be in dialogue with you. So thank you for all the erudition and eloquence you invested in this book, as well as all the sacrifice that goes into bringing such a masterpiece into fruition.
it's been a fun conversation. I hope we'll have many more in the future. My pleasure. I look forward to it. Um, to our listeners, I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, on the New Books Network. I've been in dialogue today with Professor Alexander Green. Dr. Green is a visiting associate professor and Buffalo Community Jewish Educator at SUNY University at Buffalo in the Department of Jewish Thought. He is the author of Power and Progress, Joseph Ibn Caspi and the Meaning of History, published in Albany by State University of New York Press 2019. Thank you and thank you, Alex.